Matt and Hillary, and I'm Matt. And I'm Hillary. We've already forgotten what the show is called. It's well, been so long. Here's the thing. So, okay, for first-time listeners, if there are any first-time listeners out there, we are a sort of a, a, a Kim Stanley Robinson read-along podcast. And mm-hmm. if you're not a first-time listener, you've probably listened to our previous 50 or so episodes <laughs> where we went through the Mars trilogy part by part. And that's why it's called Marooned on Mars. But now we're going to read the book Aurora from 2015. And so, Hillary, my first question to you, before all the other ones I told you that I was going to ask in the first uh, place, uh-huh. this, is a, this is a wild card, should we change <laughs> the name of the podcast to Marooned on Aurora or something like that? <laughs> uh, well, okay. I, I mean, I don't think we should change it to Marooned on Aurora because okay. I don't think that's a good name. Okay. Uh, but we could change the name of the podcast. I don't, I mean, you know... Th- it's such a random name from it's, what now seems like so long ago yeah. in our personal podcast journey. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but I don't like have an idea of what a new name would be. No, I mean it could. We could stick with marooned somehow, marooned in space, or mar- mm-hmm. or just marooned, or. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know. I think we should just keep it. And it's kind of like Chapo Trap House. The whole logic of the name <laughs> is just lost to the mists of time, and it doesn't. It's taken on its own meaning now. Yeah, exactly. It's but, a drug reference. Yeah, it's a drug <laughs> reference. It's in the zeitgeist now. People are saying it on the street. They're arguing oh, about yeah. it. Clamoring, clamoring They're, for it. You, you hear the chatter. You know, the chatter in the streets, at the bars, at the barber shops. They, they've been saying, "Where's our content? Where's our content? What are Matt and Hillary doing? You know Why what? are they not?" giving us the content you joke but there are a few people on twitter who <laughs> there are about three of our 300 listeners who you know are are, are looking forward to us coming back uh <laughs> yeah i mean i'm sure my mom is excited about it and your mom too probably she might be although she she kind of uh crapped out in uh, the middle of green mars as most people do who read the mars trilogy <laughs> they quit they quit about halfway through green mars but maybe i'll get her to read uh read this one yeah i mean this book is this is an amazing book but obviously the mars trilogy is amazing too. yes yes um so uh we so let's talk about that so the format of the show has been that we're going to read part by part the mars trilogy and kind of and and discuss it we should talk about our bona fides and what gives (laughs) us the right to imagine that we could possibly do this um yeah uh, you know, for a new audience and to remind uh, the, our faithful listeners uh, of who we are. Uh, who are we, Hillary? Who are you? Uh, well, Matt, you're making me kind of nervous because honestly, I'm not certain uh, what qualifies me to. Now, uh, Hillary, come on. <laughs> now you're just being modest. You've taught this book many times at a very uh, prestigious college in the Midwest. Uh, well, that... <laughs> You're making the podcast sound bad. It is bad. It's a terrible podcast. 
yeah. So, I mean, I think that this is a podcast in which we both draw on the fact that we have academic backgrounds mm-hmm. and that we have quasi um, and more or less precarious academic jobs. Yeah. And uh, but in and fact, leftist, our com- leftist socialist uh, tendencies. Well, I was going to say, but in fact, the podcast comes <laughs> out of a couple of things. Uh, let's say one, we like talking to each other. Mm-hmm. That seems like a big thing. Yes. Um, two, that I think that we're both socialists. I usually would say I'm a communist. I don't. I don't know about you. Yeah. Matt. I'm, conf- uh, I'm confused. I just, <laughs> I, I refuse to put a label on myself, Hillary. No, no labels, man. No labels. Uh, and three, we both really like science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think when we started the podcast, it seemed like we were going to read the Mars Trilogy because this is this extraordinary work of, I'm just going to say, leftist utopian science fiction. Yes. Um, and then due to, I don't know, events and obsession or something like that, we moved from this is just going to be a podcast about science fiction to, oh, this is a podcast about Kim Stanley Robinson's work. <laughs> yeah, it, it did end up being that in a, in a weird, unexpected way. I mean, probably in no small part to the fact that Stan started listening to the podcast <laughs> exactly. and emailing exactly. us and we became friends with him. So hopefully, uh, you know, hi, Stan. I hope you're uh, listening. <laughs> um, and he we, did. He did email me that, like, he that basically a well. You guys haven't been making a lot of episodes. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, I've been. Oh, it was a lovely. It was a lovely letter that was full of other things. But. I've been. Uh, I need to email him back because I never did tell him uh, what it's like living in Maine. But uh, we'll talk about that at the end of this episode. Um, anyway, so yes, it is at this point still a Kim Stanley Robinson focused podcast. Um, you, uh, okay, first of all, you teach a lot of classes at the University of Chicago on science fiction. I do. I do. I actually that- got more got into literary science fiction by sitting in on a class uh, that you taught while I was simultaneously teaching a science fiction movie class about post-apocalyptic yeah. science fiction. That was awesome. That was an awesome quarter. Yes. Uh, we both have our PhDs from the University of Chicago, but that's not important. Uh, <laughs> we're not bragging we're good, about we're it. We're good people despite that. We are good people despite that. Um, and despite what, you know, you'll hear out on the street. Um, <laughs> and possibly from our mouths. <laughs> and, part of what, and part of what makes us good people is that we are precarious in, in terms of academia. <laughs> we know that it's all about precarity and uh, contingency and luck and uh, that anybody with a tenure track job doesn't actually deserve it any more than I deserve <laughs> to not have a tenure track job. Yeah, yeah. Um, deserve, sure. Deserve's got nothing to do with it, as Clint, no. Clint Eastwood said in Unforgiven. Ooh, nice. I am a scholar of uh, Westerns, in fact, in point of fact, is what my dissertation was about. However, what I was going to say is, what was I going to say? This did end up becoming a more Kim Stanley Robinson-focused podcast only because not just because we were reading the mars trilogy which took us like two years to get through but because the mars trilogy is so fascinating and it relates to other ksr works yeah for sure and you particularly love this book and were always referencing it and so this became the logical next step for us to move into once we finished the Mar- both the Mars Trilogy and the Martians yes. um, uh, collection. <clears throat> yeah. 
Yeah, I think that this is a really, this is a remarkable novel. I've only, despite what you said, I've actually only taught it once. Oh, okay, I thought it was um, twice, okay. Um, and I taught it in a class that is about um, utopia and futurity in contemporary science fiction. Um, and really the point of that class is just to uh, give students an opportunity to think, to try to think really concretely about what it means to um imagine a future in which human life could be substantively different and substantively different in ways that are better and more conducive to the thriving of humans. So that didn't mean only reading things that had like a positive, uh, you know, quote unquote, positive vision of the future. It meant thinking about like, uh, how, how can we think about utopia? Why might utopia matter to us now? And, um, you know, I, I think that this is partly why it's great to be talking um, on this podcast and with you, Matt, about mm. Robinson's novels, because he is a great utopian writer who is like always teaching us how to think about things and how to ask different questions and always making us think about the hard problems and, uh, but in ways that are also deeply absorbing and exciting and do all of the other kind of, you know, science fiction-y stuff that is maybe sounds more fun than uh, being utopian. Right. I mean, he and he's described science fiction as like the realism of our time. And mm. by that, one of the things that he means, I think, is that it is a science fiction and particularly utopian science fiction is a space in which um, multiple different um, discourses and discursive systems can come together and intermingle and um, give us a picture of of you know of 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 the world of possibility or of uh, uh yeah of what's possible right mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. uh but also like <clears throat> of kind of underlying systems that we sort of take for granted or that are um implied or tacit in our everyday uh experience so um th in this novel for instance um artificial intelligence uh, ecology. Mm -hmm. um, uh, these are two of the big sort of um, discourses that are involved. But then also, of course, like as a novel, it it is a work of art. So it, it uh, his novels also reference or uh, are in dialogue with some of the great um, literary traditions of the past centuries. Not only science fiction. But um, but other forms, other forms as well. For sure. For sure. Yeah, I think that this this novel is a great example of um, one of the one of the things that I think is basic to science fiction. And this is not just like my idea, but lots of people have this idea, which is that um, the the ways in which you have to the ways in which you engage you as a reader engage with a science fictional world like when you're trying to figure out how it works and when you're encountering things that feel deeply strange or uh, ways of living or uh, ways of organizing human life that are not like ours, uh -huh. um, that the effect of that is also to estrange you, the reader, from your own world. Right. And that estrangement isn't just like, oh, suddenly you feel like you don't belong. That estrangement is it allows you to think that the way that we do things now mm -hmm. in the here and now in this actual historical moment is not just natural mm -hmm. and not just the way things have to be done, mm -hmm. but that in fact things could be different 
Um, and you, so science fiction can create in you the capacity to think about where you are and to think not only about what you want, but to think that like the set of things that we take to be default in our world are not in fact defaults, are not mm. the product of some unchangeable human nature, but the product of a set of historical circumstances and they can be changed. Yeah. Um, and like there's nothing, you know, I think there's nothing more important to be thinking about right now. Right. Um, to be embracing that possibility of change. And that is also the project of, that, that utopian project is also the project implicitly of whatever you want to call it, socialism, communism, leftist For sure. plot. Um, yeah. And the other thing that science fiction does is not only, and, and Robinson's novels particularly, in a kind of backdoor way, not only that things could be different, but that things have been different, will be different, <laughs> yes. and are different right now in the present. Like there are all kinds of different life ways going on right now that are not that are, you know, not not uninfluenced by capitalism, but that provide glimpses, hints, fissures within the capitalist system that if we focus on them and if we work on them, we can make them bigger. We could, uh, we could participate in them, we could dive into them, we could cultivate them uh, sort of consciously and, and with a great deal of effort and a great deal of focus, um, but that things in the present right now, we don't have to wait centuries, we could start working on this now and make things different now because, right. because we don't live in a homogenized society, but the capital, the one that capitalism wants you to think that we live in. We don't live in a homogenized society. We never have, and it's and we never will. And it's not just that there are like you know communes or the Amish or something out there <laughs> that you could join. It's actually things within your daily life that are almost quasi science fictional in the sense that they are utopian. That there are moments, there are practices, there are habits that you participate in right now that could form the basis of, uh, of, a, of a utopian futurity or something, right, or a utopian right. present. Right. There's a really great um, uh, uh, sort of critical theorist named Jose Munoz who wrote a beautiful book called Cruising Utopia, which mm -hmm. I strongly recommend because um, it's a really cool book, and although it is an academic book, um, I think it's also really approachable. He was a really like brilliant and open writer. Um, but he talks about queerness, about queer life and queer modes of attachment and being with others as having in them this kind of potential, this sort of anticipation of an entirely different possibility of the way that we would live, mm -hmm. um, you know, so that he takes that thought from um, somebody who Matt and I have talked about a bunch of times, the Frankfurt School theorist, Ernst Bloch, who thought about human beings as having inherent in us a kind of capacity um, for glimpsing and also wanting difference, mm -hmm. for wanting a different, uh, which he called hope, um, mm -hmm. uh, for being able to recognize that we want things to be different and being able to produce various kinds of imaginaries of difference. And those imaginaries, as just as you were saying it really, really beautifully, like those imaginaries show up all over the place, even in like very, very small stuff. Um, and I think thinking that like our, our difference, which means our substan the, subs the, the substantive possibility of us living differently with each other, that that is here with us now. 
um, is extremely important. And then the other thing that I feel like Robinson's novels always remind you of is the only way it's going to happen is if we work and we mm -hmm. work together and we start that work now. Yeah. Um, uh, the, you know, part of the struggle of kind of critical thought in general and utopianism is just the work of realizing that the whole world is built by us, like we are the whole built world, or mm -hmm. that the world around you that you see came about through concerted human effort. Now, it may not have been consciously orchestrated, uh, or, uh, or the way that it was consciously orchestrated wasn't necessar didn't necessarily intentionally create the world that, is, uh, that, is, that surrounds us. But, um, but there's not, that's not to say that it couldn't, right? Uh, right? Or that a different group of people with different intentions couldn't build a new world. And the point of, I think, like the, the great utopian project of utopian fiction and of like leftist thought is to realize that you could be, you could help to constitute such a group that would create a new, uh, a new society, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you mentioned uh, Ernst Bloch, you mentioned Jose Munez. Munez. Munoz. I think a couple of other names that we just would probably want to throw out there in terms of um, where we uh, are coming from in terms of our understanding of science fiction would be Frederick Jameson and For sure. Darko, Darko Suvin. Um, My hero. Your hero, Darko Suvin. <laughs> so Darko Suvin has a uh, concept called the novum. Mm. that uh, I would ask you to kind of give us uh, a definition of and then in by way of setting up Aurora, um, what is the novum? What would you argue is the novum in Aurora? Oh boy, wow, okay, big questions. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so so uh, in the 1970s, Darko Suvin um, wrote what I think is an amazing and book that anyone who likes science fiction should read called Metamorphoses of Science Fiction, um, in which he makes an extremely rigorous argument about science fiction, what that genre is, what marks out that genre, um, what distinguishes science fiction from fantasy, uh, and a variety of other things. Um, the argument has certain uh, polemical elements to it. It's really interested in saying we should think that science fiction is something distinctive. Um, it matters to think about what science fiction is and what science fiction does. And in a lot of ways, you know, for, for Suvin, what matters about science fiction is its ability to offer us the possibility of doing this kind of like concrete uh, imagining of difference of the possibility of us living differently together. So part of what it does is it has a denaturalizing effect. Uh, it keeps us from thinking that the way in which the world that we live in works is just how things are and how they must be. Um, so Suvin actually takes, so one of, one of the things he thinks is distinctive in science fiction is that in any science fictional text, he's particularly thinking about narrative science fiction, about written science fiction, um, uh, any science fictional text revolves around a point of newness, mm -hmm. um, which he calls the novum, and he actually takes that from Ernst Bloch. Okay. Um, and the, so he, Suvin has written a lot about the novum since he wrote The Metamorphoses, and I think that the, the 
it's actually like a more kind of slippery concept than it sort of seems like at first. But the the most basic thing that he says about it is like the novum is a point of newness that you encounter in a science fictional text that cannot be translated back into the terms of your world, of the reader's world. Mm. That is the real world, so-called. Mm -hmm. um, so like for Suvin, um, like a lightsaber, mm -hmm. um, a, fe a feature of a certain supposedly science fictional world yeah. uh, is not a novum because a lightsaber is after all just a sword. Um, <laughs> uh, Right. Yes. But but, you know, like a time machine. Well, mm -hmm. a time machine is a novum, right? Mm -hmm. Something that we cannot just translate back into our own terms. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's kind of an interesting thing to think about. But I, I think it has certain kinds of there's certain sorts of limits yeah. on what you can do with that kind of definition, um, particularly because the question of like, what does it mean that something could or could not be translated into our own terms is right. like kind of a complicated one. And also because, as Suvin himself has discussed particularly recently, um, you know, that can make it seem like what the Novum must be is some kind of technological innovation uh -huh. of some kind. Mm -hmm. And you can see how that could go quite well with a sort of like futurist capitalist logic, right? right. Oh, our great big brains will make up this thing. And uh, once we've invented this piece of technology, things will be different. Um, so I, I tend to think of the Novum as like a... Um, it's like a kind of analytic exercise for you as a reader. When you're trying to think about a science fictional world, you're trying to think about, like, what does mark this out as different for me? Like, what is the point of, that I feel like I am looking at something that is radically new, mm -hmm. that is different in a way that I, like, can't even name what the difference is. Mm -hmm. And what is the point in the text where I think that there's something like that that matters so much that I might even think that this novel is kind of, like, organized around this idea of this new thing? Again, I think if you think about the time machine, you can see how that works. Yeah. Or if you are a reader of Ursula Le Guin, you know, like, the, the Ansible is potentially a, a, a kind of a novum of that kind. Okay. I, I like to just use it as a sort of analytic for thinking about, like, how would I describe what's different here? Okay. How would I describe what in the science fictional world underpins what is different in the human relations as depicted uh -huh. in that world? And sometimes that's just like, you know, I'm reading, I'm reading this book and I'm like, well, this thing is really cool. Uh -huh. Right. Um, and then like that, then I think like, why is this thing important in uh -huh. this novel? Uh -huh. Right. What does it do? Um, and and other times maybe like in the case of like the Ansible and Ursula Le Guin's uh, Hainish novels, like it it's something that both seems to be concrete and material in this world and make a material difference in this world, and yet also has this like rather extraordinary um, reson kind of metaphoric resonance with our own world. It opens up an idea about communication and about distance and a bunch of other things like mm -hmm. that. So I think for Aurora, like the ship is like a clear example of what the novum could be because if we want if we were like you know hard pressed to if we you know had a gun to our head and said what's the novum in aurora right it would have to be the ship because it is this as we'll come to find out this kind of living machine i mean it is a whole it's organism a quantum, quantum computer it, and a whole machine it's a, yeah. yes, a whole it's a, living organism sure. well yeah it's a quantum computer that also you know that is this kind of symbiosis between technology and biology um things that seem you know it it operates in a kind of 
I don't want to say uncanny valley because that has a different kind of resonance to it, but it has that, it, it operates in that kind of space between the animate and the inanimate, something mm. that ought to be not alive or, or not quite dead, but uh, is nevertheless, you know, seems to be, uh, you know, seems to have be endowed with some kind of soul or consciousness or something like that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think sh I think ship is a good thing to think about here. Yeah. I think um, e even to me, one of the things that I love and think is worked out really well in Aurora um, is the idea of a world that is extraordinarily reduced. Right, it's reduced yeah. to something that can be on a ship, um, and yet also is is sort of bountiful in certain ways that holds multiple different kinds of possibilities. And there's a way in which like the world of the ship um, is also a miniature of uh, Earth or a miniature anyway of an idea of what Earth is. I mean, I think this is something we will for sure be spending a lot of time thinking about. Um, and, and I do think something about the way in which a set of human relations is kind of constituted in this kind of miniaturized form in the novel. I think that's, that's really key to thinking about what's going on in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so um, let's. So uh, what if? How are we going to divide this up? In mm. the past, we've read when we read Mar the Mars trilogy, we read it part by part, and those parts could vary from anywhere from like twenty pages to like one hundred and sixty pages. Um, Aurora has six, seven chapters. Has seven chapters. Um, and they do vary a little in length. They do. I mean, the first one is about 40. The next one's like 80 or 90, 60, 80, 60, 80, 60. So, oh, it's kind of a rhyming. I wonder if they'll find a deep structure that Stan has hidden in there for us. <laughs> um, should we divide It's all it? in the page numbers. Should we? I like numerology a lot. I don't I... know if you know that about me. Um, do we want to do one episode per chapter or do we I, want to divide I, it in a different way? I think we should do one episode per chapter. Okay. I was thinking we could kind of group them based on like big things that happen in the narrative. But uh, honestly, there is so much to talk about mm -hmm. in each chapter. And I feel like, uh, you know, our impulse when we get going is often to talk for quite a long time yeah. so in the interest of not just like boring the shit out of people i think that maybe it makes sense to d divide it into seven parts a, a chapter per episode yeah. i mean my my philosophy of the art form of podcasting is that uh -uh. <laughs> it's just it is about boring the shit out of people being very long-winded and mm -hmm. it's really about just the familiarity of our voices and if any <laughs> And if any freaks out there like the sound of our voices enough to just listen to us prattle on about a topic they're they're mildly interested in, I mean that's their problem. I mean the the art form of the podcast really just exists so that two friends can have a conversation with each other. And yeah, if exactly. any like weirdo voyeur audio voyeurs out there want to like tune in, that's you know that's between you and your psychoanalyst as far as I'm concerned. So that's fine with me. Seven episodes. That sounds good. I think it's I think it sounds good. And I, I think that since, um, you know, my work schedule is kind of intensive right now, for me, reading it in shorter chunks would be something of a blessing. And I suspect for a lot of listeners, that would not be such a bad thing. Yeah. Either. I mean, like, 
yeah, we'll try to do it. We'll try to do it every week. Um, I imagine with your work schedule, we may have to take a couple, maybe like a couple breaks here and there, um, like miss a week or so. But, um, you know, I got nothing going on. So. Oh, yeah, I know. Your life is a void. It's uh, yeah. We'll talk about that in about 15 (laughs) minutes. If you want to skip ahead, I'll talk about the void that is my life and uh, try to, you know, uh, (laughs) just counting the minutes until five o'clock when I can give myself three beers in a row and uh, oh my god yeah um matt it's it's good to be back with you it's good to be back in the in the podcast seat i've I've missed you hillary uh you're the only person i talk to other than my partner most weeks um and my barista um yeah i'm honored um so okay so we covered sort of how much we're going to cover we're covered sort of what science fiction is one question i would ask you as a more bigger expert on literary science fiction especially is what kind of a science fiction novel is aurora other than i mean first of all is it a utopian does it does it qualify as utopia or a utopian science fiction novel i know that like the reception of this novel has been somewhat uneven like people think of it as pessimistic i actually don't see that uh Mm very much um i mean i could see why people would think that but i but i was not left with that feeling at the end of the novel maybe i'm wrong um but also it is a as you, as we mentioned like a ship novel like this is a like like you know gener- what do, what do you call you, you've called it something before like a generation ship or something yeah i mean i think it fits into that sub genre right uh-huh. i mean the idea of okay here is a kind of spaceship that's built to maintain human life over an extremely long voyage heading out of the solar system towards some other potentially inhabitable planet. The idea of the ship being that people will live out their entire lives on it and generation will succeed generation so that the ship will become the world for the people on it. Right. Um, And are there other novels like this for for folks who, you know, fall in love with Aurora and want to like see read other other types of novels like this well the short answer to that is yes oh weird so this is not a sui generis (laughs) it is not wow no a lot of there are a lot of generation ship novels and actually honestly this is like a really uh super dorky answer but (laughs) if you were like oh my god i just want to read a whole lot if there's any science fiction subgenre or like mo science fiction mode that you're like i want to read a whole lot of novels that are in this mode because, like, you know, you can you can really find a very distinctive satisfaction in a certain kind of SF novel, yeah, I think. Yeah. Like, for a while, I in a very bad period of my life, I was just reading, like, super far future space opera novels. <laughs> so just, like, we're just, like, flying around in a spaceship. Yeah. That was basically... That just felt like that's the only thing I can handle in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Let me recommend the Internet Encyclopedia of Science Fiction. <laughs> Sounds crazy. Uh, it is edited by people who I are scholars um, and have very strong opinions that I don't always agree with, but it has a really great, like, um, sort of, uh, you can, like, search by, like, theme or subgenre. Um, and then you can get an article that is going to list for you, like, basically all of the classic examples and some less classic examples of, like, generationship novels, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, and and then you go from there to your local used bookstore, yes. and you just start looking for those things and buying them. And that's actually really, really fun. It's a really great way to begin to like build up your sense of like, here are a bunch of ways that this stuff has been handled, you know. And when you're reading stuff that's like published, you know, prior to like the late 60s, you probably will read a lot of SF that has like uh, some like reactionary mm -hmm. politics and like uh, really horrid gender and race <laughs> politics. Yeah. Not all of it, but like a lot of it. Yeah. Um, but you know, sometimes there are things in those books that are interesting anyway, or sometimes there are things that are so repulsive that you're like, I need to find something different. <laughs> oh my God, I just, yes. Um, I, that reminds me of a movie I just watched a couple weeks ago uh, that I'm looking up the title for. Uh, but, it, but it was from, it's a science fiction film from like 1956. The World, what is it called? World Without End <clears throat> from 1956. Oh my God. It was incredibly, basically it was a Western in space. Um, mm. And uh, the aliens were essentially like Native Americans. Uh, Ooh, and, uh -huh. But they were like, completely dominated by they had so they're they're so some astronauts leave in you know leave earth in 19 in contemporary day 1956 they go through some kind of like wormhole or sunstorm or whatever and they they come back to earth and it's like hundreds of years later and there's been this giant nuclear war and all the humans are now living underground and the men have all become like completely emasculated they're terrified to go outside because there's new there's like now like neo cavemen out there who are like hyper aggressive and so kind of a time machine style yeah yeah similar to that yeah but then and then like um and uh and so the men the people who have lived underground are you know they don't want conflict at all they're completely conflict averse because of course the world was destroyed so let's not like get into fights anymore um but this means, of course, that they have no, you know, manly spirit of discovery. <laughs> they don't want to. And so all the women like dominate the society in a I mean, they don't actually because the men are still in po positions of political power. But the women are all like super gorgeous, I guess, because like like the female genes have are, you know, they're domesticated. So in a domestic space, women just become much more beautiful. Uh, yes. And the men yes. are all craven and they can't get it up and like all this stuff. It was, it was really fun. It was really stupid and like very awful and misogynistic. It was great. Uh, that sounds completely horrifying. It was bad. I mean, it was bad, <laughs> but it was, it was great. It was great. Bad, but good. It was very racist. Ah. It was also like a weird, like, it, it was basically like, in a certain sense, it was birth of a nation as well. I mean, which was yeah, yeah. incredible, but yeah. Uh, I was going to throw out a couple of, I think, Generation Ship E novels, yeah. just as uh, sort of examples. Um, one, which I've only read once, um, and I had some issues with it, but I also think it's kind of interesting, is called The Dazzle of Day. Mm. And I think it's from the 90s, and the author is named Molly Gloss. Um, and so I, I can't honestly remember what's happened on Earth, but like, I don't know, things are fucked up on Earth in some way. And there's like this um, sort of small, I think, uh, Latin American Quaker society, mm. uh, which builds or somehow gets like a generation starship to like head off, um, you know, for like a new planet, a new planetary life. Uh, 
and my memory of it is that the novel has some really great and fascinating things and some things that I felt slightly mystified by. But just the Quakers in space thing is like weird enough to make it probably worth checking out. Um, and then in a very different, uh, very different vein, the novel that I'm reading right now that's like my I'm not reading this for work novel uh-huh. is um, Gene Wolfe's Book of the Long Sun, which uh-huh. is actually uh, I think it's. I think that's actually four novels uh-huh. all held together under that title, um, which is just like a really amazing and somewhat hard to describe book that kind of roughly part of what goes on in it is uh, it takes you a while to realize that you're reading a book about people who are on a generation ship because uh, they don't know that that's where they are they don't know that they're they don't know that they're on a ship at all they just take it that they live in a world that has certain kinds of features um i mean maybe you know when i finish it maybe i'll like uh riff on it for you at some point but it's uh it's amazing wolf was an incredible and like to me puzzling but amazing writer and Mm -hmm. i'm the book is incredibly enjoyable cool super different from aurora but really interesting cool cool um Okay. Is there anything? So, uh, do we do we need to talk about anything else? This is our this is our preview episode for Aurora. We've set up what we're gonna do. We've set up who we are basically, and what <laughs> we think science fiction is, and why we why we like to talk about it. And if that's all you're interested in, uh, unless Hillary, unless you, th- is there anything else we need to talk about? I don't think so. I mean, I think it's good to just if you haven't read Aurora. Right. I mean, I I think some people who have some listeners of this podcast are just like rereading these books, yeah. you know? Um, but I think if you haven't read Aurora, I would rather not spoil anything yeah. about it. Yeah. Uh, because uh, it, yeah, it's just lovely. And it, I think yeah. just like getting to experience it uh, will be worth it. Whether you listen to uh, these two bozos talk about yeah. it or not. Um, but yeah, I would say too that like, uh, you know, re- try to read it, get a head start. Um Read it and reread it uh, if, if, you, if you'd like to, unless you want to go in fresh with us entirely. But because it would be difficult for us probably to refrain from spoilers, you know, talking about what happens next. If when we're talking about like chapter right. one, we might end up talking about something that happens in chapter two. So if you're spoiler averse, then, you know, try to read the whole thing before like next week. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, and also, you know, tell your friends if you've if you've always wanted to get somebody to read a science fiction novel with you, this could be a good uh, <laughs> way to <laughs> persuade them to do it. Um, oh, yeah, exactly. And and honestly, I think so, you, I, Matt, I feel like you said earlier, like some of the reviews of this, some of the reviews, the sort of tenor of them, as I remember them, were like, Oh, you know, Kim Stanley Robinson, the great utopian science fiction writer or the utopian science fiction writer is writing this novel that's like anti-utopian or pessimistic or something. And I don't think we should weigh in on what we think about that yet exactly, Um, except, I mean, spoiler alert, I I disagree with that. (laughs) (laughs) But this, I mean, I think if... um, uh, if you're interested in thinking about what it means that another world is possible, but that that might not be elsewhere, it might have to be here mm. on Earth. Uh oh. Hang on. Okay. Hello. Okay. So you were saying something. 
I was saying something about how, like, I think this is a novel that's good for thinking about, like, climate change yes. and, like, questions about planetariness and environment. And uh, there's a lot to talk about. And it's a, it's a deeply serious novel, but it's also, like, uh, I, I mean, and also, fair warning, parts of it are very, very sad. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think I've read it three times now. And every time there are a couple places where I have helplessly wept. Yeah. Uh, it but is, I am I am kind of a big crier at novels anyway. So. You're good at crying at novels. I, I <laughs> no, I think it's a good thing. I can't, I don't I don't cry usually it's at novels. It's because I'm a woman. No, it's not because you're a woman. It's because you're a better reader than I am. I'm a I'm a better crier at movies. I, I'm a movie guy. I'm a movie scholar. I cry at oh, movies. Yeah. I just go to sleep during those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just our different uh, expertises. You know, men are men are from Mars. Women. From Venus. Men are from the movies and women are from literature. I mean, it's a, you know, 19th century, the 19th century novel is made for women and like yeah. movies are just a hyper masculine uh, genre. That's why they need to be eliminated, drawn off, <laughs> thrown off the face of the earth. This is a good theory. We should write a book about this. We should. Because I think, I, you know, I think my decades as a film scholar have really been a huge waste of time. Uh, and uh, which is, you know, quite evident from uh, where I find myself now. Um, so welcome to this journey. Uh, if you're only interested in listening to us talk about science fiction, you should stop listening now because now Hillary and I are just going to complain about politics uh, and uh, rant and rave. And if you're also not a supporter of Bernie Sanders, then also turn off the podcast uh, because... That's what we're going to talk about. Because we're, we're about to annoy you We're deeply. about to annoy you deeply about how great Bernie Sanders is and how he ought to be the next president of the United States. Oh, for sure. And is going to be the next president of the United States. He really is going to be the next president of the United States if we if there's an ounce of justice in the world, uh, which there might not be. I mean, uh, there, there, might not there be. really might not be. There might not be. But Matt, it is now socialism or barbarism. It's it, always been socialism or barbarism, the point being that capitalism is barbarism, yes. despite its pretense to be something else. But in this case, like, that's what it's coming down to. Never has it been more clear that it is between socialism or barbarism. I mean, maybe like, you know, in like 1917 Russia or something like that. <laughs> it was pretty clear then, uh, or in Germany in the in the 20s and 30s. But at least in the American context, it's like we are looking at the face of you. I don't even know if you can call it. It, it is barbarism. Like I, I, I you know, I, I think that using the term fascism to describe what what's what's around the corner does a disservice to what's around the corner because it's something you know quasi fascistic but it's a different it's a different beast i think right there, there's there, the, the, i think you know talking about science fiction and utopia i think just the the quality and quantity of technology in our you know current moment alone makes it a different you know a, a qualitatively different form than the fascism that overtook mm. italy and uh germany in the 30s because you know i mean where where can you actually escape from your cell phone or from google or just simply from electric light in general i mean mm. you know like it we we are really i mean talking about aurora and the kind of you know, linkage between technology and biology or, or, or ecology, 
the biological and the and the non-biological, it's really difficult today to find where those two things um, are separate. I mean, it's always been that way, obviously, but um, but the whole world just seems sort of, you know, gripped by this Moloch of like, <laughs> it's based, Skynet, you know, it's Terminator. We're in Terminator territory, like no question. I mean, it, that's funny that you say that because I was just thinking like, I mean, you know, I love the phrase socialism or barbarism, but of course it has like, you know, deeply unfortunate sort of like civilization versus barbarism yes, right. kinds of connotations. It's definitely an imperialist phrase. That stuff's not cool, you know, but I think that one thing that we could think right now, <clears throat> I mean, just I'm just here just thinking about like, you know, the way in which there's maybe like a possibility inherent in in Bernie Sanders and more than in Sanders in the in the movement. That yes. Is, has been built and is building around Sanders. Yes. Um, you know, it, it is a little bit like we're looking at and, you know, so we're recording this just in case people listen to this later on and <laughs> Bernie is the president and everything is like really cool. Uh, we're recording this right after the Iowa caucuses. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're like we have these like twin kind of possibilities. One of them is this sort of um, the thing that we all everybody knows there's I mean, whatever, everybody who like, you know, exists within a particular sort of like liberal framework knows that they're supposed to be scared of, which is like, you know, puffy Trump, right? Yeah. And, and you know, his like, just like super overt white supremacy and, mm -hmm. and uh, whatever, everything else that is grotesque. Um, but but we also have this other thing that I'm just going to call barbarism with the caveat that I that's not a good word, but, you know, I'm just going to use it, which is like this like technocratic yeah. rationality um, that, uh, you know, is just like uh, tells us that like, the only way to get things done is by doing them in the way that they've always been done. But you know what? You might do it on an app. Right. You know, or, uh, you know, so the sort of like, I mean, this for me is the kind of like emblematized um, in a more contentful way by Elizabeth Warren. Right. Mm -hmm. I have a plan for that. And yep. it involves like, you know, calculating like percentages of income, blah, 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 blah. Right. Yep. You know, means testing, yep. uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's a contentless version of it, which is mere cheat, uh, <laughs> you know, obviously. <laughs> right. Which is just like word, 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 word. And oh. here, here. Uh oh. We're recording. Okay, you were saying that the Mayor Pete is the empty vessel of this technocratic neoliberalism that uh, Elizabeth Warren represents as perhaps more contentful, but per probably no less um, zombified version of. Yeah, for sure. I mean, none of those none of those things actually like fix what the basic problem is, yeah. and the basic problem is capitalism. Yeah, the basic problem is like that capitalism relies on the exploitation, both of workers and of non-workers, right? Yeah. I think that's important. Yeah. Um, you know, like, I think that when we say the working class, that includes people who don't have jobs. Yeah. Right? That includes people who are in some functional ways excluded from the system because capitalism requires yeah. all of that to work. What? Well, yeah. Um, yeah. And anyway, I, I just like, uh, I, despite my, you know, despite my skepticism about electoral politics and my feeling that it can be, like a lure, yeah. Um, that can it can be a distraction. I think movement building um, is what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and and going, I have been with some of my colleague comrade friends in Iowa for two weekends, and uh, you know, knocking on doors for Bernie. And 
uh, honestly, I, I that has been like uh, a really affirming experience that has made me think a lot about how much solidarity is about uh, one being with other people in yeah. real life. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, two, working with other people, doing work with them, sharing work with them. Yeah. Um, and you know, people really having a sense and being willing to like speak this sense that we're here for each other. Right. And like, we're here for people who we don't know. And we're not here to produce some kind of like absolute lockstep agreement. We're here to agree on things that we need to have happen and that are urgent and that we're willing to do things for each other because that's like part of what being a person is. And that is the feeling of, that's the like that's part of the feeling of solidarity of yeah. being in something together and working together and honestly going and canvassing uh was yeah it was really like it was like living in that feeling <laughs> the feeling of solidarity yeah uh, and that's that's fucking awesome i mean i think when i think about um america and about this problem of solidarity and socialism or barbarism or socialism or fascism or just socialism and, you know, death, essentially. Capitalism. Yeah, capitalism. <laughs> America, just as I, you know, I'm an Americanist basically of the mid 20th century. My dissertation's about Westerns and Hollywood and American culture. And it just strikes me that America must be the most heavily ideologicalized society that at least exists today. Like we're so trapped in our ideas of ourselves, of ourselves and of other people and the ideas of what other, of what other people's ideas are of us mm. that it drives us more and more, you know, our, our culture, our, what, what passes for our culture drives us more and more in inside and inside our inventions rather than in our reality right like that's the that's why twitter makes you feel bad uh <laughs> instead of makes you feel connected to people like social media i just is it's just obviously a myth like it makes me feel disconnected from people it doesn't make me feel connected from people um uh and 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 our culture is so good at making sure you keep paying attention to like screens essentially. Mm, I mean, mm -hmm. not even, you know, there's a way in which you could view a book as a kind of a screen, you know, a, a book, a novel, uh, any, you know, any kind of artwork is, is a, it, you know, is a material uh, crystallization of ideas or something like that rather than like, you know, quote unquote, the real, but the screen thing. And, you know, I speak as a film scholar is, just so pervasive hmm. in my life certainly now that i live in uh maine i am recording from maine hillary is rec recording from chicago it's yeah where i used to live <laughs> I um, miss you. i know i miss chicago <laughs> and i miss you um but uh it's very isolating here i mean not only because i you know i'm still making friends and like meeting people and stuff and not only because i don't have a job and uh, that, but because there's just very few people here and there's no, uh, there's very little sense of like public life. I mean, I'm probably wrong mm. about that cause I'm not fully integrated into this community or whatever, but it's so fucking weird. This is a weird fucking country, um, where, 
you know, so many people live in cities and they manage to get along pretty well. And then so many people live not in cities and they are just like utterly miserable um, and feel like there's no way to change their situation. So anyway, I don't know if that's coherent at all, but I mean, I think, I think it has to do with this idea that ideology is just so dominant. Uh, the dominant ideology is so dominant <laughs> Uh, that it's really hard for a lot of people to find a way out. I, I, one last thing I'll say, hopefully, and before I shut up and let you talk, is that I find it so bizarre that so many people, again, that I know through social media, I mean, or that I interact primarily with social with through social media that I know in real life, but I interact with them primarily through social media, post things like, well, my politics are closer to Bernie Sanders, mm -hmm. but I'm supporting Elizabeth Warren because I think more people will vote for her or because I think she's she'll mm. be able to get things done better or X, Y, and Z. Like it's this weird calculating thing where it's like, mm -hmm. if Bernie Sanders is closer to your politics, fucking support Bernie Sanders. Like right. why are you trying to second guess what other people think or like w what will happen in the future? Like ask for what you want, demand it, and then work to make it happen. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I was thinking two things. One is that the, the first weekend we went to Iowa to canvas, um, we were canvassing in Davenport, which is a small city mm -hmm. right on the Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, we were in a very working class um, slash dispossessed neighborhood um, where I'd say like probably at some point this was like working class housing. And they're definitely um, people who seem to be like, you know, uh, whatever, probably blue collar as they used to say workers there. And then people who were just like clearly scraping by in like, super shitty conditions. It was extremely cold um, and very icy and snowy. Um, and the conversations that we had there were like, so a lot of canvassing is just nobody answers the door. Right, yeah. That, that's fine. I get it because I frequently don't answer yeah. the door when somebody rings my doorbell. Uh, uh, and a lot of people were just like, you know, oh yeah, I'm, I'm canvassing, I'll caucus for Bernie for sure. And yeah. just like took our hand out and then like went back inside. Uh -huh. um, but the other conversations that we had were like much more um, and when there were people who were like not interested, you're just like, cool, that's all right. Uh -huh. um, but but most of the conversations we had when people really wanted to talk were like a little bit more about like these are the conditions of my life, you know, mm -hmm. um, like we talked to the guy who is like a veteran and like his back is fucked up and yeah. you know, whatever. We talked with him about the VA and he just kind of wanted to like discourse about yeah. that. Right. Um, and then the second weekend, last weekend, when we were in Iowa, we were canvassing out in a uh, wealthy suburban neighborhood, or, you know, I guess probably like upper middle class, whatever that means, suburban neighborhood outside of Iowa City. Um, and there, people, one, people talked to us a lot more. And I was thinking, is this because people are lonely in the suburbs? Yeah. Like, we had a bunch of conversations that were like included, like tears coming to people's eyes. Like, yeah. Very intense conversations that I did feel like born a little bit out of a sense of loneliness or just like wanting to talk. Yeah. Um, but also those people were like much, they were much more in that mode of like thinking about politics as like this kind of rationality calculus. Yes. So, like, there were several people who said to us, like, right off the bat, my heart is with Bernie. Right. My heart, right? Right, right. The heart. But, and then they would say something about, usually about electability. Yeah. 
Um, which I think is kind of funny because I think in, you know, I think that the, if we believe anything about numbers and polls, the numbers do show that, that Bernie would be the most likely to beat Trump. Yes. Um, uh, but whatever it was, it was like that kind of, that thing that you're talking about that like there's a deep within American liberalism as represented by uh, the Democratic Party, there's this like really deep idea that um, politics is about rationality and it's about a kind of calculation. Yeah. And it's a calculation based on like numbers and stats or something like that that you yourself don't have access to. Yes. Um, but that somebody else like, you know, the failing New York Times or some other like, you know, aspect of the media does, have, you know, or Pe- MSNBC or whatever. People who went to college. People who went to college and now have media jobs, basically. Yes. Like yeah. They must have access to those things. And I should be being a good liberal subject by making this calculus off numbers, even though immediately, I mean, you know, the thing about talking about like talking about the Sanders campaign is it's like it's not hard to talk about the things that Bernie is advocating for and that the movement wants to fight for right. because they're about like thinking about basic human needs in our current historical right. moment. right. Um, but I don't know. I was really pretty fascinated by that response of like, my heart is with Bernie, but I feel like I should do this other thing as if, as if this were, and this may have something to do with the weirdness of like people in Iowa, I think are very self-conscious about being first in the nation Uh and the weirdness of the caucus. Uh Um, and particularly from these more bourgeois people, that was something that was kind of articulated a lot in like a slightly proud, slightly shame-faced kind of way. Um, but then, honestly, you know, like, it, I it felt, like, really easy to say to people, like, we know that we need things to be different, uh-huh. and not just different for us, uh-huh. um, but different for everyone. Yeah. And, like, it's not just Bernie, but it's this entire movement that is getting built, in which Bernie is now a figurehead, but, you know, the point is, like, the movement. That That's yeah. what it's about, no, you it's, know? Yeah. That's what's so exciting is that you can tell that especially these young people, they're not going away. They are just, they are going to, they are not going away anytime soon because they, especially like the people with like Extinction Rebellion or Sunrise Movement or whatever, they are aware that it's, you know, that uh, they're up against like huge ecological crisis and that, um, that 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 has to be, dealt with in a proactive way you can't Mm. let other people um you can't let other people especially like capitalism uh or capitalists take the lead on that because they're so patently uh it's so patently against their interests for any kind of real change uh to to take place um or at least at, at the current moment i mean you know as soon as you know, I'm sure as soon as like capitalism lines up the proper contracts to create, you know, public housing or something or move people away out of Miami, then I'm sure like the capitalists will, you know, be all rah rah in favor of the Green New Deal projects or something like that. But um, it, it's just it's just so uh, self evident that um, you know that that Bernie's approach in pointing out the 1% and the billionaires and the millionaires. He he doesn't use the word capitalism all that much. No, he doesn't. Which I think is pretty... I think for him, 
from 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 the if I'm taking his perspective, it's probably pretty wise since that probably didn't get him very far throughout most <laughs> of his political career. Yeah. Um I mean, he uses the word oligarch, which I think is good, which we need to get used to as Americans thinking mm -hmm. about these billionaires as oligarchs mm -hmm. uh, and not just like billionaires. Michael but, Bloomberg. Michael Bloomberg. But um, I think, too, that like there's plenty of people under him, like his surrogates and the movement that that are, are, is coalescing around him that does recognize that capitalism, A, is a thing uh, and B, that there's plenty of anti-capitalist um, uh, analysis and resources to draw from and understand what this thing is and what socialism, uh, how socialism responds to it, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, I think that like, it's something I've had to think about a lot in my kind of, my feeling like I've really sort of, I've really like signed on to like, this is a political project that I not only want to like support, but I, I want to work for uh -huh. that has involved me thinking about like yeah i mean i i would describe my politics as more than anti-capitalist right? right or like i don't you know I, there are a lot of ways in which i don't have a total alignment with bernie and uh -huh. i think that there are some things that like he has been wrong about mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. the course of his career um but you know as I mean, and again, like, you know, yeah, of course, there are sort of like dangers to thinking like, oh, and then we'll get a good president and yeah. everything will be okay. Yeah, right? yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah. I for sure don't think that. But I, but I do also think that like, um, I, I don't know, this is like kind of a cartoon. It's probably not totally right. But I think sometimes there's a sort of picture of like, what has to happen is that like, things have to get so bad, right? so bad that finally, like, you know, we'll get, like, the density of, like, upset that can turn into, like, revolutionary change. Yeah. Um, but in some ways, I kind of think, like, isn't it possible if, like, we had, like, um, a lot of ways of, like, strengthening and then reinvigorating the labor movement because we had an administration yes. that was going to be on the side of labor. Yeah. Um, uh, which is already happening, right? I mean, I think that, yeah. like, there's a lot, you know, like, I just, I would take the teachers' unions as an example, yeah. but there are lots of other examples. I mean, just, like, you know, the, like, the grad students at Santa Cruz yeah. who have been on a wildcat strike for, like, a couple of months now. That's awesome. You know, like, that is awesome and incredibly brave, mm -hmm. right? Uh I mean, I think there's, I think this is already happening, but it, it, it can, you know, like, uh, I don't know, it can be sort of like helped in some ways. And what also if people, if it was possible that people begin to think like, yeah, why don't we have universal health care? Yeah. And if Bernie Sanders isn't able to get that through and more and more people are, which he won't be, and more yeah. and more people are like, but fuck it. Why is that is a basic thing that we should yeah. have? Yeah. You know, then you do then you have a diff, there, then there's a way in which that mass movement turns into something else. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you know, that's a like whatever. No, there's I, an idea there's an idealism to this, but it's also like I want to be there. I want to be doing the work for yeah. this, you know. No, I mean, I think that the um I think one one thing that I, I hope people are prepared for is how Bernie Sanders' presidency will be a failure in many ways. Like he will not get Medicare for all, but that will only further expose the rot at the center of the system um, and force people to get out and uh, get new people elected. Again, electoral politics, very skeptical about that, but 
having a president who uh, brings these issues up, who was elected on these issues, who will uh, put in place policies and uh, appoint uh, officials or whatever who will be sympathetic to them and fight for them and uh, uh, is, is going to do a, a huge amount for like their visibility and the kind of obviousness that these are certain things that we ought to be able to have. Um, yeah. And as, as like one of my friends who I was canvassing with said repeatedly, and I just thought like really beautifully. And also I felt like people understood this. It's not that we want Bernie to be elected. So he'll do these things right. for us. Right. We're going to do these yeah. things. Yeah. That's We're going to do these things. And this is a way of, of constituting that yeah. we who can do them. Yeah. That's part of his whole platform is like, you know, the not me us thing, which is you, you have to, you have to help me do this. Like I, I you know, it, it will, you know, I, I, I would really look forward to the two years between his inauguration and the 2022 election when he is, you know, failing to get things through Congress and then going out and campaigning in those districts to get those uh, elected officials out <laughs> and right, replace exactly. them with people who will do mm. what people, what the population wants. I mean, two other right, and then we then we abolish the senate and yes. the presidency and we rewrite the constitution and a variety of other things yeah that's oh, like we, a, maybe we get rid of the constitution altogether we get that, rid of the state finally well we absolutely know. need to have a new constitution <laughs> like this thing that was written by syphilitic slave owners needs to be <laughs> you know burned to the ground be, you know like it's insane that we've had this same constitution for uh, as long as we have no other country has you know like france has been through multiple whatever constitutions since the French Revolution. It doesn't make any sense that we still have our stupid constitution. Um, but we have, that's like a long-term project because we have to get all these fucking Republicans out of office all over the country who are just sick, sick, sick people. Um, <laughs> sickos, they're real sickos. sickos. Um, I mean, the other thing, I mean, the other thing that I, yeah, anyway, I was going to say one thing that I hope I don't know, you know, again, speaking as like a film slash media scholar, another thing that just has to be fixed is this media environment, like this yeah, corporate yeah. control over the media. And I don't know how that is a scary thing to me for for if, if, if Bernie, you know, Bernie knows the power of the media. You know, you've seen the clips of him in public access Burlington television in the yes, 1980s. Yeah, yeah. And it, they're amazing and they're awesome. Um, but. I would be really curious to see how he, you know, sort of staffs the FCC and, you know, uh, and tries to go after and regulate, you know, all corporations, but especially these media conglomerates that have this stranglehold over so much of the discourse. Um, not only like Fox News, Facebook, Twitter, but like Disney, like as a film yeah. scholar, it's terrifying to me that Disney <clears throat> owns basically are the entire you know film catalog of america of like the last hundred years of american movie making it's it's absolutely yeah that's insane it's that's insane. insane like it it, it it you know the the it, it's it, it speaks to the importance of culture of art of literature of film of 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 all of that stuff when when uh uh you know intellectual property copyright 
um, these things can be just the property of some 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 for-profit entity and any kind of relationship to uh, or bearing on the public good can simply be you know erased in favor of profit making right 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 um, right yeah um, so <clears throat> I will mention um, so I live in Maine Maine yeah that's a state right Susan Collins is the Ooh, senator from boo. Maine yeah and <clears throat> I will vote for whatever Democrat, you know, uh, is on the ballot against her. And hopefully she will be ousted. I can't. I mean, I, I'm pretty optimistic about it. People seem to be pretty sick of her. But at the same time, she if, you know, she will hold like uh, as a senior senator, she'll have um, prominent like uh, committee, you know, uh, positions where she'll right, be able to right. bring a lot of money into the state. However, like people are really sick of her. At the same time, the Democrats here in Maine are seem to be behind this woman named Sarah Gideon, who's like the um, the uh, head of the state House of Representatives. What do you call it? Speaker of the House of mm -hmm. the State Representatives. And for, last time I checked her website, it is like a contentless you know, it, she's a basically like middle of the road corporate Democrat, like mm -hmm. nothing really remarkable. There's a, there's several other women running for Senate um, to her left. One of them's named Betsy Sweet. And she's like a longtime feminist activist in the state. And she, she, she seems really cool. So I'll be voting for her. But um, Maine is a fucking weird state. Because it's basically Portland in the South and then everywhere else. Mm -hmm. And Portland's very, very liberal, very progressive. They have, um, I think her name is Pingree, is the, is the, rep is the House of, rep is the congressional representative from the Portland area. And then we have this guy, Jared Golden, for, because uh, we live in Lewiston. And which is sort of the, the southern tip of the north part of Maine, which is the second congressional district. Mm. And Golden is a Democrat. And he s snuck in there basically because they, we have ranked choice voting now. So if, if it had been the previous system, the Republican would have won. But because of ranked choice voting, Jared Golden won. Jared Golden, he's a vet. He's a not a veterinarian. He's a military he's a veterinarian. He's, a veterinarian. <laughs> he's the only veterinarian uh, who represents who's a congressional representative. But he's 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 in the military. He uh, he's like a little bit. He's like he's like forty or something like that. A Ute. He's a Ute, and but he <laughs> is in a really weird position because the northern part of Maine is so conservative, so in the impeachment trial, he's the only congress congressman to vote for one for one of the articles in, of impeachment, but not the other. What? Yes, he, he didn't vote. <laughs> he didn't vote for the um, uh, the the obstruction of Congress. And he wrote like this it was basically like a college term paper. I swear to God, like I didn't, I actually couldn't read the whole thing cause it was so 
stupid, but it was a college term paper about how he had really considered his decision and done the research and determined that at the oh, end of boy. the day, obstruction of Congress didn't happen because all because Congress didn't do all it could to enforce the subpoenas that Trump actively like, violated, right? Like, so like, like Congress subpoenaed all these documents and like at called for these witnesses like Mick Mulvaney and stuff. And, and, and Trump just said no. And that wasn't enough for obstruction of Congress for, for Jared Golden. <laughs> and you read this thing and it's like, who is this written for? Because clearly what you're trying to do is cater to both sides of your of your electorate you're, you're like signaling to republicans that you are taking this very seriously and you're signaling to progressives that you're taking this very seriously and that there's two sides to this story and that you're you know you're just trying to be a fair arbiter or whatever right 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 and what it ends up looking like <laughs> is you're just a fucking wuss like you just have <laughs> no backbone because either side will just look at it and be like that is faulty reasoning <laughs> like you're yeah. like it's also it's just triangulation it's just pure triangulation trying to keep your seat and it's going to completely backfire on this dude i feel like i mean yeah oh yeah it, it just it, it, it's such oh it's just such milk toast like centrism that uh i i can't i can't get i can't get over it i just i mean there's something in that that just like uh, I mean, that is why people feel like they don't care about politics yeah. and that politics, you know, I mean, I think like politics is the way that like we negotiate the future. Yeah. But like, that's not, no. you know, I mean, it's just like, ah, that's terrible. It's just like, I don't want to make a decision. Um, just try to just project goodness onto me and I will uh, try to be a kind of cipher for you. Um, it, 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 it's it is exactly why people don't like politics because people are just weasels and they will come up with any excuse to not make a real decision, which is why people don't like the democratic party because uh, they've indeed. been doing this for 40 years. They don't have any values at all. They compromise with people who are their ideological opposites. They don't understand politics as a power struggle. They are, they right. understand it as a, as a, a set of compromises that we can all just agree to disagree and, you know, uh, have some formula that's going to allow for the right number of abortions or something like that, or the right number of like people in cages or something like that. Or, right, or the grandiose gesture of like, I'm going to rip up uh, Trump's <sighs> State of the Union address, but I'll just vote for his budget or whatever. It, you know what I mean? Like the military budget, like just like, fuck that. Like, I, what the fuck? Why would you care? I you could, know? So, some people on Facebook uh, I saw basically doing like slay queen. Oh, this was oh, so satisfying. Oh my God. Oh my and God. I'm just like, want to die. <laughs> you are, I cannot understand where the fuck you're coming from. Like, are you fucking kidding me right now? <laughs> and of course they're college professors. Like they're, of course well, they're yeah. college professors. You know, yeah. Oh boy. Disgusting. Anyway, we're college professors, but we're the good kind of college professors. Yeah, yeah, the ki the kind of a podcast. <laughs> yeah, podcasts hey, will solve all of our problems. So I was gonna. So I have to go to a meeting in a yes. little bit. So yeah. I was gonna say, Should but have you read that essay, short essay by our friend Kim Stanley Robinson that was in Commune? I think I just uh, did. Yeah, it's called Dystopias Now. 
Oh, yes, I did read that. Oh, that's not the one I was thinking of, but yeah, I read that a while ago. It's yeah. it's from like a year ago or 2 years ago. Anyway, it's so it's uh in at communemag.com and you can find it pretty easily. I'll put um, it in the link to the show. Dystopia and, now, right? Uh Dystopias now, oh, I think. Now. Okay. Um and uh I mean, and Commune is a really interesting uh, interesting journal um, that like you know pushes on a lot of stuff and whatever but this is a really beautiful piece by Stan and I was gonna read a little bit because I feel like I read I reread this because I was teaching this the other day and I reread this and was like I you know as so often reading um, the stuff that we've been reading and talking about together I have this feeling of it like speaking to me in this moment so can I'll just read like a yeah. this paragraph go for it um uh, it's crucial to keep imagining that things could get better and furthermore to imagine how they might get better. Here, no doubt, uh, one has to avoid Lauren Berlant's cruel optimism, um, which is mm-hmm. a phrase that we could talk about at some point. Yeah. Um, in avoiding that, it may be best to recall the Romain Roland quote so often attributed to Gramsci, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Or maybe we should just give up entirely on optimism or pessimism. We have to do this work no matter how we feel about it. Mm -hmm. So by force of will or by the sheer default of emergency, we make ourselves have utopian thoughts and ideas. This is the necessary next step following the dystopian moment, without which dystopia is stuck at a level of political quietism that can make it just another tool of control and of things as they are. Mm -hmm. The situation is bad. Yes. Okay. Enough of that. Mm -hmm. We know that already. Dystopia has done its job. It's old news now. Perhaps it's self-indulgence to stay stuck in that place anymore. Next thought, utopia, realistic or not, and perhaps especially if not. Yeah. So awesome. I yeah. mean, beautiful and also that says, uh, I don't know, that says so many important things there. It's the work. We have to do the work now. Yes. Yes. Um well said. Well, good note to end well, on. Well, sta- well said, Kim Stanley Robinson. Kim Stanley Robinson. <laughs> uh, and uh, that's a good note to end on. Um, we will probably, hopefully, see you next week. Yep. Yep. I think we can do that. Chapter one of Aurora. And um, I've been Matt. Is that all? Uh, How do we end these shows? You've been Matt. I've been Hillary. I think we say you can write and review us on iTunes. Oh, yeah. We have have an email address that's like maroonedonmarspodcast at gmail.com. I think that's right. And we are also on Twitter at Podcast on Mars. Yeah. And that's probably all that we have to say Those are our things. Yeah, those are basically our things. Those are our things. And uh, we look forward to... uh, you know, going on this multi-generational starship exploration uh, <laughs> yes. with with you in the <laughs> next you. seven or eight weeks or so. So, goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.